Hello, and welcome to the Technicast, a research podcast spanning the breadth of the arts and humanities. My name's Felix, and I'm going to be carrying on our series on work and labour today. This is going to be the first part of a two-parter, and I'm delighted to be joined by a good friend of mine, David McEwen, who is a co-founder and director of Unit 38, which is an architecture cooperative based in East London. And in this first part, he tells us about how Unit 38 is trying to provide what they see as a people's design service in trying to support and help develop um, local communities. Now, as we're reflecting on what it's like to live in our towns and cities these days, there may be a couple of little moments of juicy language, but I think it's only a fair reflection of some of the emotions that ourselves and many, many of you listening to this um, will also feel. So I hope you uh, forgive us a little bit of colour with our lexical choices. So without further ado, I'll pass you over to our conversation. And I'm joined now by Dave. Hello, Dave. How are you doing? Hello, Felix. I am doing well. I'm doing well. Good, man. Thank you for joining us very much. Looking forward to this. Uh, It's a little bit of a departure from PhD stuff that we've heard recently, although the audience have had to listen to me ramble about football in the autumn. But anyway. Oh, that's okay. I'm I'm happy to join your your rambling. Top man. I'm sure we'll get into some some angry tirades soon enough. Oh yes. Well, actually, yes, because my episode was about sports washing. So yeah, you bang on there. Now, Dave, you work for Unit Thirty Eight, which is an architecture and research workers cooperative. And I just wondered if you could start by telling us one the sort of history or meaning behind the name of Unit Thirty Eight, and then two what exactly um, that title means. Yes, yeah, so I'm a founding member of Unit Thirty Eight. We are ostensibly an architecture and design practice, but really one of the key reasons for our existence is we wanted to think of how we could use architecture and the role that architecture plays within the built environment within urban space to further our political ambitions so unit 38 as a project is how can architecture how can research serve the creation of an alternative politics because uh, we are beyond tired and beyond jaded with how our, our current society is progressing and the political leaders that we have so the name Unit 38, it comes from the project that birthed us as a company. Unit 38 is a unit within Seven Sisters Market. And this is market in, in Tottenham, in North London, that holds a particular significance to black and migrant communities, racially minoritized communities within the area. And for a long time, I've, I've seen my role as a designer, as an architect, but also as an activist to protect, to advocate for these sorts of spaces, just because they're frequently underrecognized, sometimes deliberately so, sometimes deliberately excluded from conversations around how the city is shaped. So I began working on this project, this campaign to save this market from demolition in 2014. As a bit of background to that project, this market, um, which had been in existence at that point since the 2000s, um, was earmarked for demolition by Harringay Council. And not only was it the market, 
which is situated in this fantastic historic department store, but the the entirety of the block. And this social, cultural hub was set to be demolished to make way for luxury flats. And this is a tale that's common throughout much of London and actually the rest of the UK. And we thought that well, firstly, this shouldn't happen. And secondly, we can work with the community to propose something better. So in 2014, started working with the campaign there, the community there to protect the market, to prevent its demolition. In 2018, um, a colleague, Ben, uh, and I, we were approached by the traders within that market to help develop the fourth version of a community plan. And the community plan is an alternative vision for what can happen with that space, what can happen with that building. Uh, It advocates for the extension of this really celebrated market. Um, It also advocates for the use of vacant space on the ground floor and within this grand corner building um, to provide facilities and amenities for the local community, and that could be childcare rights and advice. These are all things that already existed sort of informally within the market, but we have this opportunity to expand them. Um, And then crucially, to propose an alternative model for how the building itself is run. So rather than be an extractive project, as is quite typical, where money raised is then funneled into the pockets of international already wealthy shareholders, any profits are reinvested within the building itself to offer more programs, to um, refurbish the building, uh, provide other physical improvements but also to grow this community-led development sort of ethos to the rest of the borough. Um, And that's tapping into something that's known as community wealth building. So yeah, you can see from that explanation that we're really not just about the design of buildings. We're about helping illustrate these alternative visions for like social organizing and how we can live in in a way that contests this contemporary model of regeneration and urban development. To go back to the very, very original question, where Unit 38 comes from, it was within Unit 38 of this Latin American market that we started, that we had our first office. It was above a nail salon called Pretty Nails. We were on this like wonderfully shonkily built mezzanine level. We shared the space with a Latin American lawyer, a masseuse, a nail artist, whoever else needed to use that space. Whenever we had meetings there, the the lady who owns the actual unit, great, great friend called Vicky, an incredible community campaigner, um, she would have to make sure that we weren't sitting too close together because she was worried we would fall through the floor. Um, (laughs) So yeah, we we always joke that maybe it would have been a a better choice and a more memorable choice for us to, to call ourselves Pretty Nails Architecture and Co Research versus Unit 38 architecture and co-research but yeah that project i spent quite a lot of time talking about it because all of the principles with which we practice we developed from from that one instance that one project amazing well um has this become more common in the last couple of decades in architecture or is unit 38 you know relatively unique i would say it has become slightly more common within architecture i I feel as if maybe it's the same with football the same with any sort of creative discipline Nothing is ever new. Uh, A lot of the principles that have inspired us, um, a lot of the projects, the practices that have inspired us actually come from the 70s, where there was uh, perhaps more of a latent radicalism, uh, a more open radicalism. One of the, the key projects that has directly inspired us is a movement called the New Architects Movement, which began at a university 
here in London called the Architectural Association. So students, they came up with almost a, a manifesto of practice, and it was a practice that was more oriented around how design could serve public good or the people's interest um, and then that relates to many different aspects that a lot of the time are reflective of societal issues so how we can be more representative as a profession acknowledge the contributions of women within architecture value our time and our efforts in, in a clearer way and by that I mean fair payment no overtime or policies that help protect against poor working practices the need for sustainable design practices emphasizing retention of existing buildings versus demolition, recognizing that this is a contributory factor to the climate crisis. These things, these principles, they feel quite radical and new today, but they were radical and new in the 70s. And it's, it's a bit depressing that we have moved so slowly, so little in 50, 60 years. All of this reflects shifting political waves and political movements. You think of deregulation and Thatcherite government of the 80s. That has had its impact on lots of services and lots of lots of the way space is, is sold or who owns space. And the devolution of, I would say almost devolution of creativity and ideas uh, is something that is felt more widely beyond architecture. With all that said, I do feel as if that there is increasingly a push to bring back some of these principles, um, to rediscover, to reappraise. Mostly, I kind of feel as, as with most things, it, it exists within the university or academic sphere first, and it's bleeding into practice increasingly, but it still has a, lot, a long way to go. Architecture is the second most privileged profession in the entire country. Um, so there's lots of that inertia either bureaucratic or like privileged inertia that is stopping progress but we're working on it by the way the most privileged profession in the entire country is journalism which probably wouldn't surprise you either mm. yeah but that is an interesting one yeah i do think you know if you looked at the general public architecture would have a, a particular reputation for being you know like you said relatively privileged it's very interesting though but for many reasons but i feel like so we're having a lot of those conversations in the arts and humanities Obviously, because from a lot of the recent cuts, the arts and humanities has been first on the on the chopping block. And I feel like architecture sits at quite an interesting intersection where it's kind of both very creative and artistic and very scientific at the same time. Not that obviously those are the only two um, divisions you can get, but. Yeah, I think what I would say where we would distinguish ourselves as a practice is that I feel as if we're quite open about recognizing that our proposals, our projects, and the way that we see architecture actually isn't principally concerned with buildings. It's principally concerned with people and what architecture and those spaces can facilitate rather than like a concrete, completed final product. That for me is so important in this day and age. So obviously you had success with the market, but you obviously had to had to find money to live on you had to fund the practice itself what other projects have you been able to get involved with that have allowed you to continue but also you know do work that you um that you believe in yeah i would have to very openly recognize that the, the projects that we work on community-led projects aren't the most profitable and there has been a fair amount of financial suffering and we have had to get creative i mentioned before the idea that our projects, yeah, they do serve this distinct purpose, which is a kind of social and political purpose. Um, and a lot of the way that we frame our projects is around 
thinking of design as a way of meeting the public good or the public interests. And one of the key concepts from the 70s, from that new architecture movement that I was speaking about, was the idea of a public design service. So thinking of how practices can almost be integrated within local authorities or architects can, can be integrated within local authorities to provide spaces for communities. So that could be schools, nurseries, libraries, social housing, these sorts of projects. That has been splintered and what has replaced it is private interests, essentially. So what we have tried to do is to coalesce the separate projects that we've worked on under the umbrella of a people's design service so you can imagine that being a direct continuation of of this project that began in the 70s and that has begun to capture people's attention so the way that we've positioned ourselves we're trying to find ways to secure funding for this people's design service that we can then allocate towards projects that community groups approach us with and we're hoping that Framing the projects and framing our uh, architectural and political ambitions in that way is a way of yeah capturing the imagination of funding organizations who wouldn't otherwise see architecture in that way. And a lot of the time we talk about space and ownership of space, ownership of buildings, and that's something that lots of funding organizations haven't been so immediately concerned with. Perhaps they would see um, their funding aspirations is being met through funding of services, funding of people. We've been trying to make the case to fund buildings and ownership of buildings and through that comes a, a separate sort of power that can facilitate a lot of the work that existing organizations, charities, third sector organizations are doing. So we're finding some success there. But to be honest, it's it's been five years to get up to a to a point where we feel semi financially sustainable. It's been difficult with a lot of our projects as well. People will, will come to us with ideas and we're there to support them. We're almost like community development consultants, perhaps, where it's not just the architectural proposal that we support with, but things like a business plan, a financial strategy it can also help with governance. So whether an organization should constitute as this organization or that, how that can then tie into fundraising. So we've kind of expanded the, the list of services that we offer. Um, just to be a bit more useful for community organizations like this. With a lot of the projects, ultimately, it's a case of securing some sort of asset, land, a building to then facilitate the work that they do. It's It's been difficult. I'm not sure how, to, uh, how, how else to answer this question without just continuing to stress it's been difficult. In December, we managed to get some funding for this project that I'm describing, be it the People's Design Service or this like general ethos. Um, and that has allowed us a bit more wiggle room and a bit more sort of financial security but in in the past in the very recent past we've had to take on teaching jobs we've managed to avoid a typical trap which lots of architecture practices are forced into which is focusing on like residential projects like private residential projects and extensions things like that luckily we've managed to to avoid that slightly um so we're not sort of pigeonholed within it but it has been quite tough in december following the this this grant that we've managed to secure, we managed to increase our salaries from £26,000 a year to £31,000 a year, which is very much on the low end of uh, directors of architecture practices within London. And it has been difficult to, to balance a deep desire to continue working with these projects with just the financial need of living and surviving within London. Yeah, especially in uh, in recent times. Well, yeah, big love, mate. Um, and many many organizations um like yourselves whether they be directly at the coalface of kind of social support or community support or 
maybe that one step removed, like yourselves, are facing very similar decisions. I'm in Guildford and they're having financial problems anyway, but Woking, which is just down the road, they've had to shut down lots of services because of, um, well, I mean, unbelievable financial mismanagement. I would please Google it. It is insane what happened there. And, you know, that directly affects what people can do because they can't afford to live to therefore support others. It's a bit shit, isn't it? <laughs> but there, there comes there comes out my, my first swear word of the interview. Yeah, there we go. No, it is. It, it very much is. And obviously that brings extra pressures that will therefore affect your ability to work. Yeah. You know, I know a lot of people on our end have that because a lot of them are kind of on their own all the time with, with research. And obviously I know there's a few of you, but, you know, you, you've had to build it from the ground up. This has been what's quite nice, what has brought me uh, an incredible amount of, let's say, confidence and pride is that because we run the organization ourselves and because we founded it under such, yeah, I'll be open about it, explicit political principles, it feels as if we are constantly being proactive with what we think about, what we propose, um, the organizations that we work with. Because we're not sitting still and just saying, yeah, the situation here in London is shit. Um, all these new developments are displacing all these communities. Rent has become exorbitant. No one can survive here. We are accepting that as a position that needs to be changed. And then the sort of work that we do allows us to imagine different alternatives that will get us to hopefully uh, a better situation, a, a better urban environment for for not just ourselves, but all the communities that we work with. So it, it's it's been very rewarding that to, to not sit still and to have the time and capacity to begin exploring what these alternative sort of visions could be for the city. Yeah, and um, there's that creativity. Now, in terms of making that difference, you said before about the um, the kind of focus on buildings themselves as opposed to, you know, what I could see would be a logical position of services. Why is architecture or why are buildings in particular so important in terms of community and urban environment what what do those buildings bring to the people of a place yeah i think i think that's a it's a really nice question and it can be a complicated question it can be a simple question i would say that our innate instincts are the true ones right so um more ownership over a building means more security with more security means capacity to live your life better it means more um, agency around how decisions are made in your space right and it means facilitating the activities that you want the services that you need to deliver comfort safety all these things well it strikes me that that is very much what people are thinking with the inability of many people of the younger generation to buy a house yeah. compared to having to rent long-term, for example, yeah. on a private level. Yeah, absolutely. That sense of security, that comfort is absolutely crucial. It just means that, yeah, it facilitates the opportunity to dream, the opportunity to adapt your space, the opportunity to contribute, the feelings of community you can engender and cultivate. The second answer to that is the economic answer. And that's because following uh, the rise of neoliberalism, Thatcherite deregulation, within this country, property and land is absolutely crucial. It's the way that structures of privilege, social classes are manifested. We, we speak a lot about this within the practice. The country's greatest export now is the empty shipping containers that 
are sent back to China. The second biggest is land. The entire UK economy survives. It is propped up completely by land ownership, land speculation and investment, oftentimes foreign investment in land. It's one of the reasons why house prices continue to go up. It's one of the reasons why these developments exist in this sort of perpetual cycle of building flats and more flats and more flats and more flats that are completely unaffordable to existing communities, but they generate value and they generate value to people in power. So thinking actually as well of the projects that we work on and let's say buildings that community own as being bastions or strongholds against this impending wave of development and privatization of land, privatization of public land. We see that as being absolutely crucial in, yeah, ownership, land, removing it from these these private markets as then being the way to uh, facilitate these different activities, uses, imagination, creativity, and ultimately from that, different ways of organizing, different ways of relating to one another and a new emerging politics to, to come from that as well. I think it's probably useful from the outside, although now it seems quite obvious, but the, the general public, when they think of architecture, I know previously I have just thought of someone who is given a brief and designs to the best of, of their ability a building. This is that's a, it's a really good insight into how the work that they do is linked and can either stand against or be part of that privatization, as you said, and really commodification of of the the soil now does this also apply to undeveloped public space i remember the news i think it was last year about the the guy in dartmoor who owned hundreds of acres and wanted to stop people walking across the land oh the right to roam stuff because very occasionally he hunted pheasants or something yeah yeah, oh, it's all just a fucking farce, to be honest. Uh, you can really clearly see in examples like that how arguments over ownership of land are just an extension of these, yeah, these hierarchies or structures of privilege of of the upper classes demanding some sort of right and control over the the working classes and then even the middle classes. It's it's unbelievable. You think of the Duke of Westminster as well. I don't know if he's finally turned 30 or something, but in his 20s, he owns something like 40% of Kensington and Westminster. This is a kid, essentially, who is sitting on millions and millions and millions of pounds, billions, actually, uh, worth of property that he had inherited from his family, from his father. It's, it's absolutely mad. Ownership of land, questions around ownership of land, it's very, very clear in my in my opinion to see how they reinforce these power structures. And not enough is is being done to like openly speak about it, but also to try and reverse it in any way. And that's just okay, maybe that's a, a very stark example, but you can see how, say, these schemes in which public private initiatives or public private partnerships are used by local authorities to sell off the land that council estates are on and for private developers to take control of that land and build more homes but then the council is relinquishing what was previously public land you can see how those sorts of processes are contributing to this as well yeah and we we have seen that up and down the country haven't we with um local councils now of course a lot of the things that you're talking about can be publicly organized spaces um you know you mentioned libraries and stuff earlier but there are also privately, potentially privately owned spaces or community owned spaces um, away from public organizations, which are just as important. 
And if you'll excuse me, a terrible segue, one of which is, of course, football. And I think football is very rightly often seen as this kind of domain of, well, now it's not even it's not even the very rich. It's kind of like countries and billionaires exclusively, almost obviously on a as you go down the football pyramid, that that does become become slightly less. But it's still really something that only super rich people can afford unless it's community organized. And we've seen examples in. Um, probably the best example at the moment is Exeter, but you, um, as part of Unit 38, recently got involved with Clapton Community Football Club. So I wondered if you could just tell us how you got involved with that. Sure. We have a friend who, or he was a, a member of Clapton Community Football Club's adult men's reserve team last year, and he's also he's also an architect. But actually, before that, we'd had some conversations with members of, of the football club and this is where you kind of have to potentially distinguish between the Clapton Community Football Club membership and the actual players. Membership, it's a, oh, I can't remember how they're constituted, but essentially they, they're an organization um, that is open to members who pay a certain amount every year and they have certain voting rights um, in the way that the, the football club is run. Um, so it is a democratic organization where your voice can be heard and it can uh, noticeably influence the way decisions are made. There's many different ways to unpack the idea of ownership and governance as well. A lot of the practicalities of it is reflected in the way these institutions are constituted. So if it's a cooperative, if it's a company limited by guarantee, if it's community interest company, a community benefit society, these these are forms, they're almost like legal forms that have varying um, ways of being organized, which then impact the way decisions are made. The principles of cooperatives, the principles of cooperatives organizations are ones that we agree in, and that's equal rights, uh, equal voices, the capacity to influence decisions, the capacity for everyone to have a voice, these sorts of principles. And I think they are also principles that guide the organization of clubs like Clapton Community Football Club as well. Thank you to Dave, and we'll leave that there set up for part two, where we expand a little bit about his involvement with uh, Clapton Community Football Club. We'll also include a bit more about the solidarity economy, how practice can often take the shape of knowledge acquisition, and a little bit about Spurs. So please join me next time, and in the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch, please do contact us at technicaster at gmail.com, or you can find us on x at technicast, and uh, have a lovely week.